World War Covet. From Weapon World to Peace World. Learner, begin. Your rights or their privileges. A doctrine that does not attack and affect the life of the period in its inmost depths is no doctrine and had better not be taught. Oswald Spengler, Decline of the West. Peace management calls for a completely new life ethic on our part. Habits found tolerable in the past, as well as those found intolerable, need to be reassessed for their weapon content. We must address fundamental contradictions between our ideals and the weapon realism we have had to endure because of illusory limitations. We must resolve these contradictions and develop a new social awareness in absolute peace. Assisted death should be discretionary for adults. Powerful reasons support this principle, involving personal freedom. Weapon societies forbid self-termination, another attempt to annul personal autonomy. This restriction all by itself, validates assisted death in case of need. Obviously, killers should never get to abuse these assisted endings. Waiting periods, offers of therapy, counsel, and social assistance, as well as published declarations of intent could secure the safety of potential victims. The rituals of self-directed death should be as solemn and carefully thought out as those of marriage or abortion. To merit your painless death, we officials must certify that you are in unmanageable agony or incurable catatonia. At that stage, of course, you will be unfit to request it. Such catch-22 legalisms are mere refinements of weapon enslavement. During my father's long agony, I witnessed the lingering indignities of terminal illness. I would prefer a quick, clean death at a time and place of my choosing, over any amount of hyperactive Hippocratic meddling. As usual in a weapon society, pain relief and life termination are overseen by healthy people free of pain, and the provision of abortion, by men who cannot ever get pregnant. Peace World would see to it that those most deeply affected by a problem were in majority responsible for it. Authoritarians revolt at the idea of letting prisoners cheat the hangman. Everyone understands that life imprisonment and capital punishment are nastier fates than a quick clean suicide. Punishment bureaucracies consider prisoner suicide a provocation, even though they often invoke it to disguise custodial neglect, rape, and brutality at the hands of their subordinates. They'd rather someone at their mercy were stripped of human rights and forced to suffer indefinitely, denied the right to choose their own time and means of dying. As for contraception and family planning, weapon managers aim to increase the number of abused offspring who make the best cannon fodder and the greatest body count of victims. They condemn promiscuity a priori because the resulting sexual frustration multiplies the criminal aggression they desire. How convenient for them. Sexual rebels are punished with unwanted pregnancy, moralistic condemnation, incompetent butchery, social ostracism and genital diseases otherwise controllable by straightforward public health measures. The stupidity that's been institutionalized on this topic for all these years is inexcusable. One might conclude that warfare is a fundamental human imperative, a crude but customary method of coerced population control. That is another cherished weapon myth. So is the idea that war promotes survival of the fittest. Unfortunately, two realities intrude. First off, warfare promotes poverty, ignorance, and high mortality. These in turn induce polygamy, a self-evident outcome for very poor and therefore hyperviolent societies. Over long stretches of time, they spin off fewer male survivors and more females. This unbalanced sex ratio induces polygamy, more children, and social approval for unavoidably large families. Poor people might as well congratulate themselves for what they can't avoid in any case. More often than not, rich folk have fewer children and smaller families, the better to raise them. Larger families require overworked and, more likely, abused women. These in turn produce neglected children. The outcome is a mass of despised women folk, potential killers among their children because poorly raised, denser populations and an upsurge of personal violence and public warfare. Secondly, warfare kills off those more creative, strong, brave, bright, healthy, dutiful, and enlightened, faster than it kills off the rest of us. The silage of warfare is a superfluity of stubborn mediocrities who waste precious time imposing their rough sketch bureaucracy on the rest of us. War and its offshoots are their ultimate revenge. If warfare were forbidden, future generations would grow up stronger, wiser, and more honest. It would take generations of this kind to mend the harmful effects of a single generation massacred. After consecutive generations of massacre, it might take a century's worth of peace. Until then, evil and indifference to its ramifications prevail over the good and its preventive care, in direct proportion to those casualties. Thus Rome's transition from republic to empire can be attributed to the deterioration of its management due to massive elite casualties during the Punic Wars, those in Gaul and civil wars after. The stagnation of the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact nations, as well as the eventual collapse of their leadership after the Cold War, to massacres before, during and after. It is grimly comical to note that subsequent historians blame this Roman transition on the effects of Roman peace, almost as many quarrels as quarrelers, but not on those of war. In turn, the Soviets' collapse is attributed to the clownish and ruinous policies of that reactionary con man, President Ronald Reagan, but not to the festering sore of previous casualties apparent to anyone who would bother to count them. During World War II, sick, America suffered about 2% of the casualties Russia suffered, 600,000 dead versus 30 million, and none of its massive infrastructure demolition. Guess who won the Cold War? All that, thanks to Ronald Reagan and his smirking con schemes. Right? There are better ways to stabilize the population, sound nutrition, quality universal health care, comparable education, dependable social security for the elderly and the disabled and, more importantly, strict enforcement of equal rights for everyone, women and children included, without compromise or exception. Everywhere those things have improved, populations have shrunk to the horror of the reactionaries. 
The only real thing to fear is that poor, less well-run but well-armed nations drag the rest of us down in revenge. Every nation should be equally well-off and depopulate just as quickly. No problem then. With fanatical obstinacy, weapon management blocks these benefits each in turn. After all, its technicians prioritize mass destruction and suffering. Life enhancement is irrelevant or else subtracts from those goals, it is at best a sideshow compared to harsher priorities of theirs. The prohibition of birth control harnesses explosive human energies, intense sexual frustration and the rage of bastard ostracism, multiplied by human overcrowding reflexes of aggression and shadism. Weapon management strengthens itself by abusing such intangibles as the sex drive, deprivation fears, and natural differences between men and women, between people of different ethnicities, divergent ideologies, and exclusive faiths, and by sublimating all those into criminality. An organization declares itself a weapons institution if it disempowers women by discouraging family planning, another reason to tag mass religions as shameless weapons institutions. Sexual promiscuity is unavoidable among people denied adequate education and healthcare, it is equally prevalent among those well-educated and cared for. Ordering people to refrain from something as pleasant as sex is a royal waste of time for everyone concerned except weapons elites shrouding their real agendas. The duller and less skilled the female and the more fragile her support network, the more often weapon managers will urge her to have children. Routinely and without redress, she will be raped into motherhood if she lacks high-privileged male protectors. Such sad ravages occur as often today as they did in the past, thus no social improvement can be noted. The best infantry recruits survive the least secure childhood. In short, they are bastards, orphans, or both. Ghettos and slums make the best nurseries for a large number of good troops. That is the only reason they exist. Otherwise, they are the most expensive neighborhoods to administer and the least profitable ones downstream in time. Even though social regression to medieval iniquity has always been their hypocritical goal, reactionaries blame the average liberal for social decline. Accusing an opponent for their misdeed, that is their usual attempt to bury their shame. In the name of compromise, modern politicians, one million dollars equal one vote, persist at monkey-wrenching progressive legislation. Now that the evils they bargained for have borne their bitter fruit, they declare these outcomes the fault of progressives. Only weapon management running a weapon state could spew such provocative lies and get away with them, thanks to our collective apathy. Everyone knows that a shortened human lifespan, ended at the embryonic stage if necessary, is better than a lifelong torture endured in some ghetto nightmare, famine desert, or prison hell. Many people would never condemn their own children to such a demonic existence, yet convince themselves that the innocent children of strangers, their poor parents and grown-up convicts deserve it. This contrarian self-righteousness betrays the shadism of many religious fundamentalists. They would rather struggle, go to jail and sometimes kill to see that unwanted kids are born, but they wouldn't cross the street to assure those kids' upbringing. Furthermore, they support warfare abroad, prison empires and the death penalty at home, targeting for misery and destruction the excess children they insist on bringing to term. What would Jesus have said? On the other hand, those who counter abortion with legitimate alternatives of adoption and quality child care, command unlimited respect. I suspect those would mostly be women. In so doing, they deny weapon technicians their primary source of recruitment. No one prefers the lesser evil of abortion. Safe and speedy adoption should be the norm for every unwanted child and every couple wanting to raise one. I never understood why there are so many waiting lists of unloved children and anxious, would-be parents. At present, morning-after drugs, birth control alternatives far less invasive than surgical abortion, have proven effective for days after conception. Attempts to suppress them by right-to-lifers have been just as bitter. Ignoring the real challenge provoked by their precious contradictions, weapon managers make up bogus challenges to their tyranny. By denormalizing harmless sexuality and criminalizing drug use among consenting adults, reactionaries produce complete new sets of deviants they may persecute at will. Unfortunately, we have granted too many responsibilities to certifiable neurotics and let them impose their obsessions on the rest of us. Then we let them select the next even sicklier generation of neurotics to take their place. This is a typical tailspin of institutional degeneracy over time, until ruthless inquisitors reign supreme everywhere. Bring out the sweeps. The covered profits reactionaries gleaned from decades of illegal drug trade have financed their sprint to global fascism, cheer led by the media. Where do you suppose all those billions of criminal dollars wound up, except in their filthy, manicured hands? The media went along with this conspiracy, even though it wound up collapsing their own profession along with everything else. Learners will redraft legal codes with one overriding consideration, ease of enforcement by voluntary cooperation. If a significant minority evades the law, it is unenforceable within that population. If a majority would not do it, yet would not turn in someone they caught doing it, it is unenforceable. When more than a trivial few are subject to arrest and prison, the law becomes unenforceable. If the law permits penniless wastrels, redundant lawyers, industrial jailers, and ideological fanatics to entangle honest folk in frivolous legalisms, it becomes unenforceable. Insofar significant minorities define the police as hostile intruders, the law as a whole becomes less and less enforceable. Some social commentators have concluded that the law should be an inexorable juggernaut. According to them, it should grow without restraint, menacing and absolute. Anarchy might emerge from its failure to grow or from attempts to correct its worst errors. This attitude leads to Auschwitz. The law should be a gossamer web best defined by its absence, to which most people submit when they go astray. Any failure or error on its part calls for strict and swift self-correction. A cop has no more right to shoot an unarmed man, no matter what the provocation, than a civilian would have. 
A prosecutor who lies to obtain a conviction should serve the prisoner's time in his place. Learners will enforce a minimum of laws. Destructive activities that cannot be realistically forbidden should be regulated to serve public health. A state so governed needs very few laws, and insofar it becomes necessary to promulgate new ones, the need is obvious to everyone. The first to propose them merely states what everyone else has already felt. It would not be a question of intrigue or eloquence to pass into law that which everybody has agreed to once they were sure everyone would do likewise. John Jacques Rousseau, Du Contrat Social, The Social Contract, Bordas, Paris, Bruxelles, Montreal, 1972. Book 4, Chapter 1. Prostitutes should be thoroughly inspected by doctors and regularly certified, drug distributors, licensed like alcohol and tobacco dealers. Gambling receipts should be taxed to defray gambling abuses. Any abuse of minors should become unthinkable and difficult to hide, just as much by law as by custom and universal mores. With fewer bad examples to draw upon and more good ones to imitate, people will do the right thing more and more often until most people regulate their own behavior, and especially that of local troublemakers, with the help of firm outside protection but less supervision from above. Once our laws have been purged of weapon draws, specific offenses will emerge uncovered by precedent. In that case, a duly appointed jury should determine appropriate outcomes, not after the fact legislators with one hand in the till and the other stroking rich criminals. Even convicted felons should look upon the authorities as benevolent by and large. Mean-spirited punishment incites defiance, no matter how hopeless that defiance may be. Excessive punishment glorifies the criminal in the eyes of his community and defeats a worthwhile outcome, however much it may entertain the psychopaths in control. Remember, every criminal conviction is a new confession of community failure, money and talent suck down a black hole of imprisonment with nothing gained. The welcome sacrifice of bad guys during a ritual of public vengeance, that would be the worst alternative, except execution, from a peaceable point of view. Of course, some crime victims believe their tormentors deserve punishment, that their assailant's suffering will somehow offset their own. I might come to the same conclusion under similar circumstances. God guide us through this obscurity. The death penalty befouls man and God, heaven, and earth. We conspire to execute the least fortunate and the most disturbed among us, or look the other way in guilty silence, because we are moral cowards. If we loved one another fearlessly, we would find better ways to live and let live in obedience to the basic tenets of every creed and culture. Murders of passion, ignorance, and insanity are a pity to behold. Wisdom dictates they be preempted by stratagems more subtle than neglect before the fact and brutal hysteria after. Lethal self-defense might be half-justified in worst-case scenarios. Juries could take to heart the cries for vengeance of a victim's family. Also, violent convicts should be housed and guarded in prison separately from petty criminals. In a society free of weapon mentality, murderous violence will have no more appeal than eating a plate of shit. No one but the obviously insane would think of doing it, and they'd be relatively easy targets for preemptive detection. However, when legal punishment officials and their supporters collude to execute another prisoner, they spatter themselves with that convict's guilt and carve the mark of Cain on their own for it. Many of them become addicted to consecutive legalistic executions, each new one less justifiable than the last. In pursuit of an improved score, they wind up executing the deranged, the mentally deficient, mere children and innocents misride and misjudged. Tyranny's worst and final argument is the death penalty. In that direction lie the wanton slaughter of innocents to settle mere property disputes, and civil war to argue paltry principles. In legal confrontations, the criminal, his victims and official representatives of society, judges and lawyers nowadays, juries and trained mediators soon, will merge their valid needs into a holism. From this agreement pragmatic solutions will emerge. The widest voluntary gathering of judge, jury, victims, the accused, and intermediaries should seek to resolve these problems in a manner acceptable to the majority of them. The media should portray acts of violence as despicable, cowardly, and tragic, no longer heroic. Rather than eliminate fictional violence entirely, or pretty it up and tone down its ill effects, as happens in fiction these days, movies and television should fan the flames of fictional violence until it kills off, maims and disgraces everyone involved. Villains, supporting actors, heroes, and heroines alike, the more lovable the character, the more senseless, purposeless, and stupid his or her mutilation and destruction in portrayals of violent confrontation. Hollywood upholds an implicit formula already, in the end, no criminal should walk away unpunished. We should change that to read, in violence programming, everyone dies in agony, is horribly mangled or left in total ruin. By the movie's end, only peaceful, anonymous onlookers should be seen to emerge from the smoking ruins with any claim to happiness. No longer would heroes triumph through skillful applications of violence fully justified by lame plot devices. No longer would lethal violence be invoked at the drop of a hat, the moment problems became complicated and worrisome. No longer would it solve those problems, only aggravate them. Every antagonist in a violent confrontation would be mangled, ruined, driven crazy or destroyed by the violence shared. No more heroes except those of peace, or, if forced to be violent in self-defense, equally self-sacrificial, as in morality tales like have gone, will travel. Military honor above all. People often blame the worsening of fictional violence in the media for inspiring worse actions on the street. I am convinced that the modern-day count of violent acts per capita has remained unchanged or decreased compared to those of your. However, they have become more perilous overall, thanks to too many fire harms in hands unqualified for that responsibility including those of bad cops. 
I am also convinced that the dramatization of cultural heroes suffering from more and more insane levels of violence and inflicting it in turn has incited lone gunmen and gangs to surpass the latest level of self-promotional massacre. It would be better if we cooled down the fiction media and thus the developing minds of potentially homicidal psychopaths, more and more problematic to throw ourselves in the opposite direction like we are doing these days. Under the coercion of weapon management, our country turns into a vast prison courtyard. In unacceptable numbers, the law-abiding fortify their homes and neighborhoods. More and more victimless convicts and homeless indigents are subject to systematic abuse. Regardless of our guilt or innocence, deficits, or assets, it'll be our turn soon enough. A social commentator once split civil society into two worlds, neighborhoods that remain open, and banana republics where the rich shield themselves behind bodyguards and perimeter walls beyond which mass poverty festers unattended. The richest, most powerful, and freest nations are turning into banana republics. Just like prior to World War II, sick, the United Nations and other world organizations are less and less able to address the proliferation of wars, refugees, and tyranny. We enslave and disgrace ourselves by failing to honor our foremost values at every tier of governance. In our case, political indifference breeds global chaos and the sense of personal and collective powerlessness that psychopaths find quite useful. It is paradoxical that our society's incredible wealth decrees its declining liberty, equality, and fraternity. Everyone became upset when the news story came out that all the neighbors of a city block ignored the cries for help of a female victim attacked just below their window. Not only did no one come to her aid, no one called the police at that time. What more can we expect from ordinary folks when emblematic world organizations refuse to do any better? More and more often, perimeter walls and security alarms are set around homes. Mine has both, another disgrace of mine. Far too many Americans are in jail or on probation. An American citizen who is also a minority male has a much better chance of being crushed in judiciary clockwork than of winning at roulette, when the reverse would be true in a healthy peace society. Once peace mentality regains the fore, so will our self-discipline, virtue and refusal to accept the unacceptable. Global learner organizations will lead out warlike violence. Those global efforts will inspire atavistic warriors to defend peace world. Problems will work themselves out in proportion to shared deficiencies on every scale, from local families, marketplaces, and administrations to the world agora and world court. Comment. Mark Mulligan at Comcast.net.